Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. Welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom here, and today in B-Side we're going to be covering Solaris and Stalker, two films of Tarkovsky's uh, I'm also recording from out of town, so I don't have exactly my normal setup, but I will, will do my best. So we're going to look in this week and next at two aspects of Solaris that came up in our discussion. First, in this week, we're going to take a look at uh, the type of knowledge that is interesting to Tarkovsky and the type of knowledge I think he is using. Um, and this knowledge, I'm going to be roughly calling mystical. And next week we're going to move into discussions of the sublime uh, and how the philosophy of the sublime affects this film and possibly other Tarkovsky films. I'm going to do this over the course of really Solaris and Stalker. I might bring in Andrei Rubliev and, and other Tarkovsky films. For this week, I think we're just going to be looking at Stalker and Solaris, which I see as pieces that kind of work together. You could watch either of them independently, of course, but they do seem to to work as a piece. So I'm going to start then with a brief summary of Stalker, since this is a B-side to Solaris. I'm going to assume everybody listening is familiar enough with Solaris's plot to, to make do. Uh, however, I won't make that same assumption about Stalker. So, Stalker is t- is about a a man known as a Stalker who takes people into this place called the Zone. The Zone is forbidden. It's surrounded by armed guards. They will shoot at you if you try to get in there, and he has become known, kind of in the underground, as somebody who will take people to the zone. Now what the zone is, is this space that has been contaminated and it's it's kind of right outside um, what looks to be a kind of something of a metropolitan area. It's really hard to tell. Everything seems to be uh, sort of in a state of half formation. But the zone itself appears to have at one time been a, a military base and now because it had been contaminated it is um it's basically left alone there's no people there however within the zone there is a room that when you enter it your wish or wishes are granted and so stalker has become in demand in the soviet underground for taking in order to take people into this room in order to grant wishes though Stalker himself doesn't go into the room. And in this film, he is taking a scientist and an author into the room. And the zone is filled with these kind of booby traps. They're not manifest. They're not easy to pick out, the the booby traps that, that are in the film of Stalker. However, Stalker has kind of learned his way around them. So one example would be when they get outside the building in which the room is located, 
the author and the scientist, who are known only as the author and scientist. We don't have proper names in this film. The author and the scientist decide to walk right up to the building. Stalker tells them no, and he has these little uh, nuts, metal nuts, that he would use to secure a screw. He ties string to them, and he starts throwing them in different directions. And based upon how the nut lands, that's the direction they walk, and so they can't actually walk in a straight line to the building. Um, how this booby trap actually works, we don't really know. It's beyond us. However, we realize that Stalker himself has a, a type of hermetic knowledge about this place, that that is why he is in such demand. Because if you get caught in one of these booby traps, um, we learn people have died in the past trying to go to this room. And so it is, a, it is a place of danger. And one of the reasons why the guards who are guarding the zone don't pursue the party into the zone is that they're terrified of it. So that's the plot of Stalker, or at least that's the setup to the plot. What ends up happening is when we get to the room, we learn that the author is too scared to actually go in. What he realizes is the room gives you what you secretly wish, not what you articulate as your wish. And he is scared that all he wants isn't insight or genius, but fame. And we learn that the scientist is terrified of the room, of what it can do, and all he wants is to blow it up. And actually he has brought a bomb with him to blow it up. What ends up happening is the scientist dismantles the bomb. He decides not to blow it up. Neither of them go into the room. They come back not having gotten what they want. And Stalker, who is extraordinarily upset, sees the the reason the people didn't go into the room as being a sort of lack of faith. Or they, they don't believe in it anymore. Which isn't quite true. They don't it's not that like they don't ontologically believe in the room. They do. They both say they do that's why they're there um, but they don't believe in it as being a, a power they want to interact with anymore as a power that has a positive effect in the world and stalker in the end of the film lies down in his bed exhausted is seemingly delirious and says he will not take people there anymore now these two films solaris and stalker involve a person encountering, or people encountering, a thing that is both a space, a place, the planet, the zone, and an intelligence. The space we, we understand, more or less, the zone is, is sort of hard to physically figure, but it is a, a, distinct, a distinct space. It has the markings of something that used to be lived in and has been abandoned. And obviously Solaris is a, a planet. You, you can go there. Um, but the intelligence of both of those places, and it's revealed that the room in the zone has intelligence that actually at one point kind of signals, it speaks almost, that the intelligence doesn't have a defined meaning. And in fact, what we learn from both pictures by the end is that the intelligence is not to be defined. It's indefinable. These two movies offer people, both willing and unwilling, who possess a type of knowledge or in a position in which they have to deal with difficult knowledge. 
And so that's what I kind of want to talk about today is, is the type of knowledge that Stalker and Chris Kelvin either have or have to learn and how that knowledge kind of differs from, let's say, factual accounts. So Stalker and Kelvin are living in a space just outside intelligence and phenomena. And it's a space that neither can explain, but both are captured by. Stalker believes in the zone. He worries people will stop believing in it and will no longer accept its gifts. Kelvin decides he will remain on the space station outside of Solaris in order to stay with Hari, the reincarnation of his dead wife. In both cases, the relationship of the individual to the space-slash-entity is affective. With Kelvin, it's obvious, but with Stalker, we see him towards the end, after the writer and scientist refuse to enter the space, weeping on the floor of his home. What we see is that Stalker does have a deep, emotional, affective connection to the zone and an extreme desire to protect it. Not against physical destruction, though he does want to protect it against physical destruction, but mostly he protects it against unbelief. That people in this world would come to not want this thing anymore. He says, and I'll quote a large portion of Stalker's lines at the end of the film, quote, they still call themselves the intelligentsia. They don't believe in anything. Their capacity for faith has atrophied through lack of use. My God, what kind of people are they? End quote. His wife says, quote, Calm down. It isn't their fault. They should be pitied, not abused. End quote. Stalker responds, quote, Their eyes are blank. They are thinking not to sell themselves cheap, how to get paid for every breath they take. They know they were born to be someone, to be an elite. They say you only live once. How can such people believe in anything at all? Nobody believes. Not only those two. Nobody. Who should I take there? Oh Lord, the most terrible thing is that nobody needs the room and all my efforts are in vain. End quote. When his wife says she wants to go, he refuses her, saying, quote, what if you fail to, end quote. And that is when, when she wants to go, when she says she wants to go to the room. Okay. Here we see an almost ancient idea of the room as an old God, the God of the Hebrew Bible, a God who demands worthiness. However, the relationship between Stalker and the zone is, as I said before, affective. It reminds me of the, the kind of the mystical tradition of early thought in the late Middle Ages and Catholic thought. Uh, and, and what we see in the kind of the Middle and Late Middle Ages in, in Catholic thought is a division really between two forms of knowledge. Rational, which is embodied by people such as Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas most famously, and effective. So the knowledge, the rational knowledge, is... Um, based upon a rational discourse to explore ideas and to prove certain things, prove the nature of God, prove the kind of metaphysical doctrines, uh, to even look at the, the physical world and make claims about it. We see at this point uh, philosophers bringing in people like Aristotle and Plato and putting those thinkers 
into conversation with Christian thought and Christian texts. And so that's rational thought. The second form of knowledge is mystical knowledge, which is kind of both older than, than rational thought, but also sort of developing alongside it. And what this is, what, what mystical thought is, is effective knowledge, emotional knowledge, knowledge of experience. And so many mystics imagine experiencing, let's say, the, the pain of the saints, or Christ on the cross, or the suffering of Mary, in order to come closer to God through emotional feeling. Um, one example of this bring is from the Counter-Reformation of the 16th century, and major author there was St. John of the Cross. His years are 1542 to 1591. And he has a, his famous book, The Dark Night of the Soul, which is a, an eight stanza poem depicting the soul's journey through, to, excuse me, towards oneness with God. This knowledge is not divorced from the knowledge granted by people like St. Thomas. And in fact, St. John of the Cross references the ladder of mystical love a concept St. Thomas indulged in. But the idea isn't um, in, in the logic of the latter or a, a rational grounding to help us understand it. The idea is emotional unity with God, that the latter becomes an, an intellectual structure in which we can get to God, right? And, and feel unified towards him, unified with him. It's about oneness. It's about um, experiencing God physically. And so going further back in time, we also see that mystics are not only interested in unity with God, but also the unknowable nature of God. So two influences upon St. John of the Cross were the, this work by an anonymous author and called The Cloud of Unknowing, as well as the collected works of someone named Pseudo-Dionysus. They used to think he was this writer Dionysus, and they discovered he wasn't. They don't know his name, so they just call him Pseudo-Dionysus. Uh, the, the Cloud of Unknowing was written in the late 14th century, um, and it teaches the way to know God, and that way is to surrender your mind as well as your ego to a state of unknowing. Right, So um, not not pretending to have particular knowledge in order to, to get more knowledge, to grasp more, but to really suspend all knowledge. And by suspending all knowledge, by admitting complete ignorance, in that ignorance, you capture the nature of God. Okay? The, the book itself, the, the poem, takes the form of advice to a student. Uh, he writes the following, and this is from Cloud of Unknowing, quote, for he can well be loved, but he cannot be thought, end quote. So the thing to encounter is what you cannot understand or even digest, and all you can do is spend time contemplating the unknowing. It's experiencing the known and experiencing love, kind of emotional love. I don't know what else love would be uh, other than emotional love, but that's the way to God, not to know him, but simply to endure. This itself, the cloud of the unknowing, is influenced by Pseudo-Dionysus. And Pseudo-Dionysus is 5th and into the 6th century. That's when he's writing. He's a religious figure from the East. So the, the, um, the eastern part of uh, what would be, what was the Roman Empire, later becomes the, the Byzantine Empire. 
uh, he sees God as better characterized and approached by negation, meaning saying that you you find what God is by saying what God is not. So by saying what God isn't, what God is, is revealed to you. Pseudo Dionysus writes in his Mystical Theology, that's the name of one of his books, that all divine names are to be negated. That includes names that are symbolic, such as spirit or father. God is not spirit because spirit is something. Um, God is not father because father is a thing. It's a word. We can identify it. And to say that God is not spirit is not to say that God is not anything. Negation is not privation, right? It's not um, absence. It's just God is not that thing. He is still presence. He is still something, um, but he is not that thing. And that's a big part of, of pseudo-Dionysus. Negation is not privation. When we say that God is not living, we're not saying that God is lifeless, but rather that God is beyond living and lifelessness. What brings us to the point when even negation and affirmation must be transcended. So as you are, as you are approaching God, and that's the word he uses, approaching, um, negation itself must be negated. So the not knowing of God is a form of, of something, and so even that has to be negated. And so the knowledge is not a, a collection of propositions one could state, but the stripping away of all propositions, of all thought. Okay, and that brings us to Stanislav Lem and his work. So Lem's work, both in Solaris and his novel his master's voice which was originally 1968 the english version was published in 1983 both of them show deep interest in the impossibility of knowledge here we see lem is deeply interested in how individuals can understand a type of rationale that may be so alien that we we just can't get there. And so knowledge itself, rational knowledge itself, does have extreme limitations. And, and by extreme limitations, I mean that we won't be able to get at much of what the universe has to offer via rational knowledge. It is itself, it, it's uh, circumscribed. It's self-circumscribed. We can't get out of it um, by using it, by using rational knowledge. And I think this impossibility resembles that of pseudo-Dionysus, which says that knowledge comes through affection established once the pretense of knowledge can be suspended. So once we can say we are not going to acquire a definition of God, right? We're not going to say what God is we can have an effective relationship with God. We can approach him through the suspense of the pretense of knowing what God is. And so in, in Solaris, we've covered this. Um, but in his master's voice, we, we could look at that. What, what that book is about is about a group of scientists who receive an alien transmission and attempt to decode it. And this book documents their failure to figure out what the transmission is, and no one can figure out what the, what these aliens are trying to say. Slyrus is also obviously about the impossible, 
impossibility rather of knowledge the planet brain that is solaris cannot be made clear to the people and what it's trying to do is filled with so many unexplained phenomena and endless theoretical debates i mean the entire guide to solar solaristics is basically explained in lem's book that any positive explanation as to what the ocean is or trying to do is a mystery. We will never know exactly the reasoning behind the ocean's actions. This is the dark, unknowing nature of something beyond human experience, not unlike that of God. And the same thing is true of his master's voice. Now, famously, Lem did not like the Tarkovsky version of it. He also didn't like the Russian translation. I mean, Lem was protective of his work, but very famously, he hated Tarkovsky's version. He said that um, he was focused really on, on space and the encounter with the planet, and if he had wanted to write a romance, and I guess he saw Tarkovsky's film as a romance, he, he would have written more about that. Um, and he didn't think the, the relationship with Kelvin and Hari was really interesting enough to highlight. Uh, and so what I think Tarkovsky brings us instead, and this may be part of the, the problem Lem has, um, is that the type of knowledge that the people on the spacecraft, space station, can have is effective knowledge. Much like the knowledge Pseudo-Dionysus says we can have, the knowledge that the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says we can have, it's effective, it's experiential. Um, it might not be entirely wanted, uh, you know, uh, the followers of Pseudo-Dionysus and, and Pseudo-Dionysus himself are looking to get towards God. They're trying to approach God. I, I don't think Kelvin is trying to approach his dead wife. Um, so there's a, certainly a difference there. However, the knowledge that Kelvin, Snout, Sartorius, that they have of the planet when they're there is one filtered through an emotional response to presumably a loved one. We only learn about Kelvin's guest, but we get the impression that's true of the other people on board this station. Um, thinking about effective knowledge, one great example of this, of this kind of experiential effective knowledge, is St. Francis of Assisi, who had an intimate moment with a vision of Christ at La Verna in which he was given the stigmata. This was in the early 1210s. Bonaventure, Saint Bonaventure, wrote of this in his classic Journey to the Mind of God, which was written in 1259. And um, Saint Francis wrote, obviously, but Bonaventure uh, was able to give a very complete and distinct intellectual framework for St. Francis's physicalized encounter with God. Um, and physicalized because St. Francis had the stigmata, which I don't, I don't know how many people know what that is. It's pretty famous, but it's when you develop the wounds that Christ experienced on the cross. So openings in the hands and feet, um, yeah, kind of an opening in the side from the spear where they, they tested to see if Christ, the, the Roman soldier tested to see if Christ was dead, um, marks on the forehead for the, the crown of thorns, um, 
These are the marks of the stigmata, and people who are particularly holy, Padre Pio would be another example, suddenly have these marks. Uh, and, and it's a mark of kind of experiencing the life of Christ. And, and so Bonaventure wrote about this in The Mind of God. And this sensory experience that, that St. Francis had appears, I think, in my mind to be similar to what, what is happening on the planet. The people in the space station um, have unintentionally journeyed to the mind of God, or at least they've not actually realized what they've gotten themselves into. They intentionally went there, but they're having a kind of um, emotional and sensory experience of the planet via something they can't understand. Their senses then, that is the, the physical knowledge of the guests, right? The fact that you can sleep next to Hari, that Kelvin can sleep next to Hari, that he can attempt to take off her gown, and it's, it is mismade, right? The, the rope that's supposed to be holding the gown together is in fact entirely decorative because the planet has somehow gotten it wrong. But, you know, Hari is not an illusion. She is not some kind of figment of his fevered imagination. She is real and, and completely present um, in all to all his senses. Their senses, then, the people in the spacecraft, allows them knowledge about the intentions or the abilities of the planet. Um, and so what we end up having, then, is not rational knowledge, right? So here's, here's the division between rational and effective. It's not, we, we can't say the planet is doing this for this reason, or the mind of the planet works in this way, or the planet wants this or that. What we end up having, having then is knowledge of how the planet operates that is kind of based on an emotional response to these figures. Um, and the planet seems to be drawing up these figures because of how how deeply ingrained into the emotional mind of the people who are visiting. So Hari is a deep part of Kelvin's intellect, um, an incredibly important part of it. She's burnt in there because of her suicide, which he feels he's at least in part responsible for. And so the planet is able to touch that incredibly important part of his mind because of how emotional it is. And so the planet's means of communication and our, or not our, the people in the spacecraft's means of communicating with the planet are filtered through this emotional experience. But that's it. We don't get a rational explanation for why it's happening or how it's happening, just like with the stigmata. You, you don't know why or how um, these wounds are opening up in St. Francis. Um, what we do know is that we are touching the unknowable and that the only way to really touch or experience the unknowable is through emotion. Okay, and so I want to leave with an extended quote from Bonaventure. This is from chapter three of his Journey to the Mind of God. I'm going to do my best to get through this. There's some references in the quote that uh, I'm going to do my best to, to parse out. Some of them I think I'm just going to ignore uh, because not quite important to the point I'm making. But here we go. Quote, The soul, believing, hoping, and loving Jesus Christ, 
who is the incarnate, uncredited, and inspired word that is the way, the truth, and the truth and the life, which through faith it believes in Christ as in the uncreated word, which is the word and splendor of the Father. It recovers its spiritual hearing and sight, hearing to perceive the sermons of Christ, sight to consider the splendors of his light. Moreover, when by hope it longs to capture the inspired word through desire and affection, it recovers its spiritual smell. While charity, it holds fast the incarnate word as one taking delight from him and as one passing over into him through ecstatic love. It recovers taste and touch with which senses have been recovered while it sees and listens to its spouse. It smells, tastes, and embraces him as a bride can sing repeatedly the canticles of canticles. That's the, the Song of Solomon, which has been written for the exercise of contemplation according to this step, which no one lays a hold of except he who accepts it, because there is more in effectual experience than in rational consideration." End quote. And I think that the mystical transformation of knowledge from rational to experiential or effective is what we are witnessing in both Stalker and Solaris. Uh, next week, we're going to move into uh, a discussion about the sublime and Solaris and take a look more at maybe a possibly secular reading of these films. Thank you very much. This has been B-Side.